Hello and welcome to this podcast summary of the joint IASB FASB board meeting held between the 28th of February and the 2nd of March. My name is Mark Byatt, Director of Communications of the IFRS Foundation. I'm joined by Sue Lloyd, Senior Director of Technical Activities and Steve Cooper, member of the IASB. Steve, perhaps we could start with you if you'd like to talk about the discussions on insurance. Yeah, thanks Mark. We had a couple of long sessions uh, on the insurance project which is uh, working towards its completion, uh, we hope. Uh, I think we covered about six areas uh, dealing with the premium allocation approach, um, uh, certain aspects of that which is measuring liabilities of uh, infrequent and high severity events, onerous contracts, unbundling, and then uh, financial instruments with discretionary participation features. Let me try and go through sort of each of them fairly briefly. Uh, For the premium allocation approach, we discussed the eligibility criteria. This is something that's been the subject of a number of board meetings in the past, uh, trying to find a a reasonable approach for differentiating where that particular methodology can or should be used. Part of the difficulty in in working with the FASB on this is that we have uh, sort of a different perspective on it, I I guess. Uh, The IASB sees the the two methods that we have, the premium allocation approach and the building block approach, as working towards one overall objective, and it's kind of one model but with a variant, whereas the, the FASB has a different conceptual basis for this, which is that it is two different models. So Obviously, it's quite difficult then to align the criteria for the premium allocation approach as to when it should be used when we're starting from different places. Having said that, uh, we have, in a sense, partially, at least partially aligned the criteria. Uh, the, the decision from the IESP is that the premium allocation approach should be available when it would provide a reasonable approximation to the building block approach. So it reflects the idea that it's one model. And then we have some uh, application guidance that would help people make judgments about when that is the case. And also we decided to uh, make it simpler by inserting a practical expedient that if the coverage period is less than one year or one year or less, that you are able to use the premium allocation approach. Uh, The FASB decided to apply the same criteria, but uh, they wouldn't be application guidance, they would be the criteria that determined its application but without having the overall principle uh, that the ISB had, in, had inserted, but still having the, the same practical expedience. So whilst in practice we, we've aligned, we still do have a difference, which is the underlying conceptual basis for uh, the use of the premium allocation approach in the first place. We then went on to discuss the mechanics of the premium allocation approach, uh, and in particular discounting and the treatment of acquisition costs, Um, Time value of money in the premium allocation approach is generally less important because these contracts tend to be shorter term, but we decided that uh, we would uh, require the application of time value of money where the effect was uh, significant, uh, but would again provide a practical expedient that if the, the difference between the timing of the premium and the uh, and, and the the event, uh, the the insured event was was one year or less. Then again, we would uh, allow people not to to apply time value of money. Uh, and the IESB and the FASB were agreed on on those decisions. We also agreed on the treatment of acquisition costs. And and here we've tried to align as much as possible uh, the treatment of acquisition costs between the building block approach and the premium allocation approach. 
Uh, we went on to discuss uh, measuring liabilities for infrequent high severity events. Uh, this is all to do with post-balance sheet event guidance and whether uh, an event that happens after the balance sheet date should adjust the estimates of the insurance liability at the balance sheet date. Uh, we confirmed that uh, the other guidance that we have in this area, which is IES 10, should apply in this situation. There shouldn't be an exception. Uh, so, so some of the events uh, that happen after the balance sheet date would be deemed non-adjusting and therefore um, the liability would reflect conditions as existed at the balance sheet date. I uh, went on to discuss onerous contracts um, uh, uh, and uh, uh, agreed on uh, a basis for dealing with uh, the situation where you don't discount uh, a claims liability because of the practical expedient. Uh, and we came together to recommend that both the test for an onerous contract existing and also the measurement should be done on an undiscounted basis consistent with the measurement of the claims liability under those circumstances. Uh, fifth, fifth item is unbundling of goods and services. This is situations where bundled with an insurance contract is uh, another element which relates to the transfer of goods and services. What we've decided to do is to use the guidance in the revenue recognition project to decide under what circumstances those items should be separated and then measured uh, under the rev revenue recognition project proposals, which of course is at a, an ED stage. And then finally, financial instruments with the discretionary participation features. These are instruments which are, strictly speaking, not insurance contracts, uh, but they are very similar to many insurance contracts. Uh, they strictly ought to be dealt with under the financial instruments standard because they, as I say, aren't insurance, but given their characteristics, uh, the ISB decided that it would be best if these instruments, particularly when they're issued by insurance entities, are dealt with in the same manner as insurance contracts, so therefore measured under the building block approach. I think we've got a little bit more work to do on that because I think the board asked the staff to go away and see how we could make sure that this kind of exception, I guess, for the treatment of these instruments, when they would be under the financial instrument standard, is, is scoped appropriately. So uh, I think that'll come back at a future meeting. So as I say, quite a, a number of different areas covered, but uh, I think some good progress made uh, all in all in, in, in the insurance project. Okay, that's good to hear. Sue, perhaps if we stay with financial instruments, you could talk about the discussion on classification and measurement. Okay, thanks, Mark. Um, this week was our first joint discussion on aspects of the classification and measurement model for financial instruments. Um, as you may know, this is a joint project where we're looking at ways where we might be able to more closely align the classification and measurement model that the IASB already has in IFRS 9 and the model that the FASB has been um, developing separately. This week was good in the sense that the boards agreed to a common approach to determine what a simple debt instrument is essentially that could be allowed to be measured um, in a way other than at fair value through P&L. So these are the instruments that could, depending on business model, be eligible for amortised cost accounting under both models. And both boards agreed that it would be appropriate to allow assets to be measured in this way if they have contractual cash flow characteristics that consist solely of principal and interest, where interest represents only the consideration for the time value of money and credit risk. 
Now the ISB has always been mindful of trying to restrict the number of changes we make to IFRS 9. And the good thing about this decision is that essentially it leaves the contractual cash flow characteristics test that we already have in IFRS 9 unchanged, except for one area where we know that we already have application issues today. And that area has been for instruments such as those which might have um, interest rates that are reset, say, every six months, but they're always reset to a two-year interest rate. So there's a disconnect between the interest rate reset mechanism and the rate that's used. As IFRS 9 is being applied today, we understand that those instruments are not being considered to be eligible for amortised cost. In the decisions this week, the boards tentatively agreed that as long as the payments on these sorts of instruments are not um, significantly different to the perfect instrument with a six-month reset feature, in my example, that asset could still qualify for amortised costs subject to business model. And that's, that's a big positive change um, if it's um, ultimately adopted um, for those um, who have been applying IFRS 9. The other part of the discussion was an education session where both boards were given a session to explain the business model criteria in their respective models and that will be followed in the March meeting with a joint discussion on what the business model or business strategy criteria should be for classification and measurement. Okay, thank you. Um, Steve, let's come back to you. Uh, the board's discussed leasing, I believe. Yeah, the, the main issue that we discussed uh, at this meeting is lessee accounting and in particular the profile of the expense that is recognised by the lessee uh, as a result of applying a, a right of use model. Um, the reason for revisiting this is because uh, a number of parties uh, had, uh, had made comments on what we had in the exposure draft that um, the, the recognition of the expense would be, uh, would be front-loaded uh, as a result of um, the requirements in the ED. And that's because you will capitalise an asset, uh, the asset itself will be usually straight-line depreciated, uh, but the liability of course starts off at a higher level, is gradually repaid, and the interest that's accruing on that liability declines over time. So you get the front-loading. Uh, front so the board decided to look at alternative ways in which uh, the, the expense could be recognised. We looked at three different approaches uh, in the board paper. They were labelled A, B and C, and A was the approach in the exposure draft that I've just been describing. B is an approach which is called annuity depreciation, and this is where the depreciation of the asset takes into account time value of money. The effect is that the asset depreciation rises over time, so the depreciation of the right of use asset increases, and that offsets um, the reducing interest charge on the liability, producing a straight line P&L effect uh, overall. Uh, there are some very strong views, uh, one way and the other, about approach B. There are some people that believe that it is inconsistent with uh, accounting that we have elsewhere, particularly for tangible, intangible fixed assets. Others believe that it's a valid approach for dealing with um, for any depreciation. There was a third alternative that was discussed, which was uh, focused more on the underlying asset. In effect, this alternative approach C in the board papers was really a combination of A and B and would reflect 
the, the economics of, of the transaction. So if the transaction was more like a purchase on the spectrum, uh, then it would be predominantly the approach in the ED that would be would, would dominate in, in, in that methodology. And if, uh, if, if there was less consumption of the asset and it was uh, more a case of uh, the, the lessee paying for the financing uh, in, inherent in the, the sort of the use of that asset, then you would end up with an approach that was more like approach B and more like annuity depreciation. So the boards discussed this at length. There was a lot of concern, um, particularly from the FASB, about the operationality of approach C. Uh, the FASB expressed a strong preference for adopting approach B, which was the annuity depreciation, in order to achieve that straight line profile. The IESB uh, the, had a strong majority for approach C, which was the underlying asset approach, which effectively is this mixture of approach A and B, depending upon uh, the circumstances. So we, we had uh, a difference of view on what was the appropriate methodology. It was interesting that both boards did see a need to make a change from the ED. Uh, I think only one person on the FASB and nobody on the ISB supporters sticking with approach A, which was the methodology in the exposure draft itself. So, so clearly, I think people do view this as an area where uh, a reconsideration is appropriate. Anyway, we didn't reach agreement. Uh, what we did agree on is that there was a need to do some additional work on approach C, particularly about whether that approach is operational. So that's what's going to happen now uh, with the staff doing some additional outreach on that particular methodology. Uh, and then we will reconvene at a, a future date to, to rediscuss this uh, in a subsequent board meeting. Okay, um, Sue, let's come back to you. I believe there was some further discussion on impairment. That's right, there was. Um, so another joint discussion. And um, on the impairment project, we basically talked about two um, quite different things. <clears throat> One is uh, the treatment of symmetry in the model, and the other was um, the treatment of trade receivables. So I'll look at both of those briefly. So firstly on symmetry. The question here. Um, what is what you do about assets where they actually have an improvement in credit quality. So the assets that we were focusing on here were ones that would have started out their life uh, with in bucket one in our model where you have a 12-month uh, loan allowance and at some point in time deteriorated um, and were moved out of bucket one to have a full lifetime loss allowance established. And the question that we asked the boards was for these assets that had previously deteriorated, if they subsequently improved, should they ever be allowed to move back to bucket one and have a 12-month allowance re-established? And if so, when would that be? The boards decided that it would be appropriate to allow assets to move back into bucket one and therefore to move back to a 12-month allowance. They thought that the model should be symmetrical. And they also thought that the model should be perfectly symmetrical. So they basically decided that you'd make the decision about whether or not you should move something back to one, bucket one, based on whether or not the criteria for deterioration were no longer satisfied. So if you have an asset where, if you compare it now, compared with what it looked like when you first obtained that asset, and you conclude that there's been um, a, a less than significant amount of deterioration in credit quality over its life, and it's no longer um, reasonably possible that you won't collect its cash, it can move back to bucket one. 
um, so purely symmetrical model. The second question was trade receivables and really the big question here is whether or not it's appropriate to require really corporate entities to apply an expected loss model um, when a lot of the focus has been on financial institutions. And the boards here looked at two different types of trade receivables. First of all, they looked at what you could call long-term trade receivables, or more specifically, trade receivables where there's a significant financing component. So this is where you sell goods, for example, and somebody doesn't have to pay you for, say, two years for those goods. In that case, the boards decided that this was really like a loan, and therefore um, an expected loss model should be applied. But they decided that because of the types of entities that may be applying the model, a simplification should be allowed. So the board decided that entities with these types of assets could choose to apply the full expected loss model, so the full three-bucket approach, or they could choose to apply a simplified form of the model and just recognise lifetime loss allowance balances all the time. The second type of trade receivable that the board looked like looked at sorry, was um, short-term trade receivables. Typically those with a, a life of less than 12 months or those that are considered not to have a significant financing component. In this case the board were a little bit more hesitant in deciding whether or not an expected loss model should be uh, required. They asked the staff to go away and investigate further whether an expected loss model should be applied or whether an incurred loss model was adequate. And, and really what they're asking the staff to do is to, to work out just how big a change would it be for corporates to have to apply a more sophisticated model. The boards decided that if they did decide to pursue an expected loss model, it should be a simplified model for these assets. So an entity with short-term trade receivables wouldn't be required to track um, deterioration through buckets one, two and three rather they would establish an allowance balance for the lifetime losses on those um, assets right through their life, which would be a, an, an easier thing for them to implement. Okay, a lot of discussion there. Uh, and then just a quick wrap up on other topics. Um, I believe there was an education session on macro hedging and uh, annual improvements. And finally, uh, some discussion on the interpretations committee. Yeah, the, we made a lot of progress on uh, sort of two cycles of annual improvements uh, and also uh, looked at some of the work done by the Interpretations Committee. Um, uh, there'll be a detailed write-up of, of that in update. I, I don't think it's um, worth us going through all the detail uh, okay. in here. Uh, but the, the discussions on macro hedging continued. We, we had a sort of an interim summary of the model that we are in the process of developing and we've got more detailed discussions to come on that in uh, the next few months. Okay, so just looking out uh, into the next um, month or so, the next joint board meeting with the FASB will be in later this month, in March. In March, that's right, in London. <coughs> and uh, some roundtables on investment entities in London that are taking place next week. We had one this week, yes. a joint roundtable on our investment entities project where we heard feedback from people on what they thought about our joint proposals on investment entities. Um, we've already had a um, roundtable in Toronto and then there'll be um, further roundtables later in the month, one in uh, Norwalk, a joint um, roundtable, and then another one actually in Malaysia in the last week of March. Right. 
Okay, well, Steve, Sue, thank you very much for your time. Uh, that just leaves me to give the obligatory health warning. Uh, these are the personal views of the presenters and may not reflect those of the IASB. The official summary of the board meeting is provided by IASB Update, which will be available from the IASB website shortly. Thank you.